pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredo roupien. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello everyone, welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins and I'm the Executive Chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is a culinary historian, lawyer, and public policy advisor. He's the author of two books. The first one, Soul Food, was released in 2014, for which he won the James Beard Foundation Book Award for Reference and Scholarship. And the second book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, which was nominated for 2018 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Work Nonfiction. Also served as a special assistant in the Clinton administration and deputy director of the President's Initiative for One America. Adrian Miller, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. How are you? I'm good. Ready to break some dishes. <laughs> so two important questions before we start this thing. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have not. Okay. I've been to Spain. Mm, don't say not that. Not to Portugal. Don't say that. When you go to, when you go abroad, do you say, "Oh, I'm from the U.S." and you think someone tells you, "Oh, I've been to Canada." People never say that. <laughs> so that doesn't count here. Fair enough. Do you know any Portuguese words? I do not. I just no. know places, you know, like the names of cities and stuff, but not the language. It's okay. That's a common answer here, so I'm not going to be sad. Just because I, I said in the introduction, and we're going to talk more, about, of course, about your books, just very briefly for people that don't know, can you explain what was the initiative for One America when you worked for the Clinton administration? Sure. So it was an outgrowth of something that Pre President Clinton called the Initiative on Race. And the Initiative on Race had this basic idea. If we just talk to one another and listen, we might realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So that was launched in um, late 1997, early 1998. And then for about a year plus, they went around the country and had town halls on race and encouraged race dialogues. And the people that ran that said, Mr. President, you need to have an ongoing office in the White House to deal with issues of racial, religious and ethnic reconciliation. And so that was that's what they called the initiative for One America. Perfect. And just, just for people to know, since I mentioned. So oh, in yeah. your last book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, you mentioned what presidents like to eat and serve to their guests can be an indicator of presidential character. So let's imagine Adrian Miller and his president. Which menu would reflect best his character? Oh, man. So it would be a mix. I would have different courses, right? So there would be a soul food course for sure. There would be a barbecue course. And then there would be something we call Southwest cuisine here. Um, so kind of, uh, you know, just shows the different interests in my life, the, the three major food groups, in my opinion. And then some bomb dessert, man. So I don't know if you've ever heard of lemon icebox. Yeah. <laughs> you ever heard of lemon icebox pie? Have you ever heard of that? So it's basically if you've ever had a key lime pie, mm -hmm. imagine a key lime pie, except you have a lemon custard and the crust is not is crushed vanilla wafer cookies glued together with melted butter instead of graham crackers. And then you have the meringue and everything else. Oh, man. So it's a diabetic HOV lane just to get there, yes. right? Super quickly. Yes. Perfect. I'm going to put on anybody who wants to get in the car, come with me because we're going to go to a <laughs> glorious destination. How different, for instance, would have been for these presidents, these families, if they didn't have African-Americans serving them since day one? Were there things that were done in Europe, for instance, food-wise, that was very different from the United States? Oh, yeah. So that's an interesting question. So as far as I could tell, a lot of presidents were trying to mimic what was happening in Europe. And so 
um, especially for the big public meals, like the state dinners and stuff, they would hire a French chef. And so, uh, you know, uh, during the 18th and 19th century, uh, French cooking was the dominant form of culinary entertainment. And actually, that in the White House history, that lasts well into the 20th century. It's really not until the Clinton administration that you get kind of a break from that. Um, and so that so, yeah, they just try to mimic that as much. And, and we have stories of people like Thomas Jefferson, who had an enslaved cook named James Hemings, who was one of the older brothers of Sally Hemings. And if uh, you know your listeners are not familiar with her, enslaved African-American woman by whom we know now that Jefferson had several children. Yeah. Um, and so he had him trained as a French chef. So he spent money for like three years to have that dude trained as a French chef. So I find that there's more often than not, there's a try to, there's an attempt to mimic what was happening um, in Europe. And then in the home cooking, it was definitely Americana. Yeah. Unless you had, yeah. a, a, you know, a serious uh, Francophile or somebody like, like James Monroe and Jefferson to some extent. Um, and Jefferson was kind of half Virginia, half French. That's what people used to talk to him about. So yeah, it's a, it's interesting. It's kind of like the split world. Americana mm-hmm. at home, public meals, try to do what Europe's doing. So coming from Europe, I had the prejudice against American food when I arrived in US. That changed. If people talk bad things about it, I'm the, I'm the first person to raise my voice, be like, that's not right. So for a foreigner, can you explain what is, how would you describe American food to a foreigner and how that will tie with the concept of soul foods since was the title for your first book. Right, you know, so in many ways, uh, soul food and American food kind of marry each other. So when I talk about American food, I'm like, it's really a combination of all these different food styles from around the world. But the most elemental aspect of American food is taking the food of Western Europe, the culinary techniques, the ingredients and the traditions and merging that with what Native Americans were doing. And so what we find in the early years of the colonies, you know, when basically Europeans were faced with starvation, they adopted a lot of Native American foods. And what they tried to do is they tried to bend um, what the, what Native Americans were doing to European taste. Because, right, because, you know, they're trying to get a taste of home. So often we see an attempt to make, you know, what, what might be a wheat bread in Europe to make a cornbread version of that. And, you know, it was hit and misses. And so that's really what happens with American food. And then as we get more immigrants, we we tend to pick things we like out of these immigrant communities and make it part of our food. So for instance, pizza, hamburgers, hot dogs, uh, you know, even fried chicken to some extent. Some argue that fried chicken was birthed in Scotland. Like all, all of these things are from other parts of the world, but when we bring them together and try and present it as an eclectic but comprehensive menu. And so soul food is the same thing, except now you're bringing in West Africa. And the interesting thing about that is that if you actually look at um, the development of American food after Africans show up, Africans really undergird how the food develops. And so um, as much as Latinos dominate restaurant kitchens today, 100 years ago, that was African-Americans. And so um, and in fact, the African-American tastes um, and and effect is so ingrained now that we don't even think of it as something separate. So the use of, of red pepper, um, for example, um, the use of African ingredients like okra, black eyed peas, watermelon, hibiscus, you know, all of these things have been woven into the to our food, but we just don't, unless people are consciously seeking that information, they just think of it as American food. Like for instance, fried okra, even though it's this African thing, people think of it as bar food now <laughs> because- yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it'll show up just like a, a dish of peanuts. 
what was the idea behind writing, especially the the last book, The Presence Kitchen? Yeah, Fire? so yeah, so um, that came out of my research for my soul food book because I came across these stories and I just thought, hmm, I never really thought about that. And so I only had about four stories at first, and I, that's not enough to anchor a book, right? Because there's a you know it's it's, it's sketches because there's a lot of records of these cooks was just they were just weren't kept. And so I kept researching and then finally, man, I found 150 African-Americans who had cooked for our, our presidents from Washington to the Obamas and even to the present day. I mean, President Trump and now President Biden have black cooks. So I just wanted to tell their collective story. And, you know, I wish I had gotten this idea while I was in the White House because I could have gotten all kinds of scoop. That's but, true. you know, it came to me 10 years later, basically. So you, you cannot know. go back like, hey, I used to work. Remember me? Can I just can you <laughs> knock at the door? Remember me? I was here. <laughs> oh man, no! I tried, and I got dissed. Oh, see, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> and it was so bad. Like I got first of all, I got one rejection email, right? Say no, you can't talk to him. Then, then twenty minutes later, I got the exact same email, email, just in case I got it twisted the first time around. So I was like, all right, I got it. I've heard you speak that you say that you believe food can bring reconciliation between the races. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, in my journeys, um, I found food to be one of the easiest things to get somebody with whom you disagree, different life story, to even have a chance to talk. Um, because when you sit down at a table with somebody, you know, you recognize their humanity and then you start to connect and, you know, walls start to drop a little bit. Um, and then, you know, especially when you start talking about the food. Oh, you guys like that? Oh, you know, we, we do that here. African-Americans do the same thing. And then that just leads to conversation. And then the other part of it is that cooking is an act of love. Uh, because when somebody cooks for you, they're, they're basically telling you that they care about your survival. Even if the food is straight nasty, just the act of going through that is an expression of love at some point. And so I, I think that the... In a society that seems divided, and there's a lot of debate about how divided we really are. The press seems to say we're, but maybe we're not so as divided as we as we hear. But I think that the table is one of the few spaces that we have left to come together. Yeah. And that is for sure. I mean, we just don't have a lot of common spaces anymore. People are kind of breaking off into their tribes and being isolated. And so the table gives us a chance to, to mitigate that. When it comes to slavery, what role food play in slave culture in African Americans, and what was a binding factor among them? Yeah, so um, several levels of that. So from the slaveholder perspective, food was about power. So what a lot of people don't know is that slaveholders would control the amounts of food that enslaved people would get every week. So they would get five pounds of some starch, a couple pounds of meat, usually pork, uh, and the starch was usually cornmeal because that was just the easiest thing to grow, but it could be rice or sweet potatoes. The meat could, was usually pork because that was a cheap meat to raise, but it could be beef or fish, you know, whatever was cheapest. And then a jug of molasses. So the enslaved had to figure out how to survive by gardening, foraging, hunting, fishing, all of these other strategies to kind of round out their diet. So from the perspective of the enslaved, if the slaveholder gave them leeway to do that, a lot of people gardened and raised their own um, livestock. And so that's how we see a lot of African foods enter the Americas because enslaved people were growing okra, you know, rice, sesame seeds, uh, black eyed peas, all of these things, you know, trying to recreate home. And there's some cases where um, the slaveholder would let the enslaved actually, uh, when the weekend came and the work schedule slowed, enslaved people were actually go, allowed to go to a nearby town and sell their excess produce and livestock. And so we have examples of enslaved people buying their freedom 
Because they, you know, they had usually had to give a cut to the slaveholder, right? But then they got to keep the rest, and they would buy their freedom, or they would buy material things, decorate their, you know, their slave cabin, that kind of stuff. And that was a part of history, uh, uh, slavery history, that I didn't even know until I started delving into this book. And it just shows you how much we're not taught in school about slavery. Doing your research for the, the latest book, are one of two names from your book that's. Would you like to share more of their story and how you impressed you were by them, especially when you were doing your research? Yeah, so we already talked about James Hemings, um, but one one person I like to talk about is Hercules, who was the enslaved cook for George Washington. Uh, he starts out as a boat ferryman, but for whatever reason, George Washington has him transferred to the Mount Vernon kitchen where he learns how to cook. So when Washington becomes president, now remember, when he, Washington's president, he spends his whole presidency outside of D.C. because it's in being constructed. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in Philadelphia. He hires some white woman to cook for him named Mrs. Reed, and evidently her food was nasty. And so she gets fired after six months and Hercules comes to become his cook. That's, he's a fascinating figure. And then another person I like to talk to you about is Zephyr Wright, who was the longtime cook for Lyndon Johnson. And she was a part of history because when Lyndon Johnson was uh, mobilizing support for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he would often use stories of her Jim Crow experiences to basically guilt and shame member of Congress is uh, into saying, he, he would say, look, my cook, she can't drive through the South with us. She can't go to the bathroom and eat with the family. Uh, and this is the president's cook and she's going through this. And so when he signs the bill in the law, he gives her one of the pens and says, you deserve this as much as anyone. If I remember correctly, as a side note, because you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, I'm going to talk about actually Hercules. That was my next question. So I'm glad you said his name, but it wasn't the Johnsons that he was very surprised how much they were paying for dog foods because also the cooks <laughs> had to cook. A lot of times they had to prepare meals for the dogs, but it was him, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Can you tell, yeah. can you tell that story? Because I remember that was funny. Yeah, so it's funny. So what people don't know is that uh, it's not an unlimited cash flow when you're a president. So actually Congress allocates a certain amount of money to the presidential household and then uh, that money gets drawn down. So... The fact that the the pets had to, you know, had had a really expensive food bill, you know, uh, LBJ was kind of cheap, just like other presidents. I mean, he's not the only one. Uh, and so he's just like hit the roof. And so he loved his dogs. Right. But uh, the other thing is it, it's a cat and mouse game to use the a pet analogy. So you want the very best. Right. But, you know, that if word got out about how you're spending money on certain stuff, people would just go ballistic, right? And so Zephyr Wright actually ends up having to cook for the dog. Uh, and I don't think she liked it so much. Just basically, we don't have a lot of commentary from her, but I don't know if she was feeling it so much. Not so sure a lot of, yeah, not sure a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of cooks like to cook for, for dogs, yes. Yeah. So, um, and so what happens is when you're a first family, anytime there's a char uh, food expense, you get a bill. And that bill is charged against your account. And so we have a lot of stories uh, throughout presidential history of presidents telling their spouses, yo, you got to, and they use my words, of course, but basically, <laughs> you got to get a hold of this. We're spending too much money on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was $80, right? It was, he, he was, they were paying and he was like, this is not right. Yeah. I don't remember the exact amount. Yeah, I, yeah. Know, I knew it was high. Yeah. He, he was, he was very upset. Do you know the examples like who was someone very, very, very tight with money when it comes to try to do more with nothing? Do you have any records which president was really, really cheap? Calvin Coolidge by far. Okay. Calvin Coolidge was so cheap that he would actually nose around and just see how much the servants were eating. That's how cheap he was. 
yeah, I don't think he was well liked by the staff because that dude, he was pinching um, pennies. <laughs> and it was really consistent with his um, kind of presidential persona as well, because up until President Clinton, he was the last president to actually budget uh, balance the federal budget. So, you know, he, he, he was definitely trying to show himself to the American people as a good steward of their money. I'll put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Instead of yeah. saying he's incredibly cheap. <laughs> so you mentioned Hercules, and actually I'm glad you did, because there's a part there of the story that I would like you to explain. At the time, there was something called the Gradual Ablation Act, right? Uh-huh. Can you explain that? Because George Washington did something. Can you just explain that? Because then I will ask you something else, but for, for people yeah. to understand. So when Hercules gets summoned to uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, several, you know, like a decade before, had passed something called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780, which said if you're an enslaved person on Pennsylvania's soil for six months or longer, you're automatically free. So what Washington did to get around this, and he spent a lot of time researching this to figure out how to do this, is right around the time the six-month deadline would toll, he would pack up all the enslaved people in the presidential household take them to Mount Vernon, chill them out for a couple of weeks, and then bring them back. And he does this alternately through his presidency to get around that law. I mean, just isn't that just messed up? It is messed up. And that's why it leads me to the other question. When it comes to stories about these national heroes, such as George Washington, stories about such celebrated figures in American history, how do you reconcile these stories of overt racism with the president's place in American history and mythology? Is it possible to celebrate their accomplishments while condemning their way of life? Yeah, I, I think it is. And it, it takes some nuance. It, you know, there's some people that are their train of thought is like, OK, if you do something bad, everything else is disqualified. And, uh, you know, what they accomplished in creating the United States. I mean, you know, a nuanced thinking will will um, appreciate that because it was something different. We had the you know, the, the planet had never seen uh, something like this, a, co- a country founded purely on ideas instead of tribes. Um, and we know that operationally that wasn't wholly the case, but still, just the idea of it. Um, But, you know, the one thing I will not do is be an apologist in the sense that, oh, well, you have to think about the time, you know, slavery was much more accepted then. Now, if you go back and look at um, newspapers and magazines and all that kind of stuff, slavery was a heated discussion point from day one. And there were a ton of people that saying we should not be doing this. So the founding fathers who were slaveholders were, in a sense, kind of pariahs in their time. And that's why George Washington went to all the expense to um, try to do this on a quiet tip um, by having enslaved people in his household um, and trying to have it both ways. And even Thomas Jefferson writes about it, um, the sin of slavery. And and he saw that it would ultimately break the country, which it did several decades after his death. So that's one thing I will not do. I'm willing to be nuanced about them as men and their accomplishments, but I'm not going to excuse them for slavery. Yeah, it was Thomas Jefferson that actually, when you visit uh, the house, because of Selma, he even found a way for her room to be under his. It was uh, he he created a scheme because she was, like you said, she probably had several children from him. And yeah, it's. I remember the first. I come from a country that unfortunately participated in a lot of slave trades, and it's something that actually we don't study that much. It just mm. it's very quickly. It's a five minute like you were like, oh, that's it. And the amount of ignorance that I had when I arrived in the United States. And you need to speak with people to try to understand the history. And you need to speak with people. Why some people, for instance, feel uncomfortable going to Mount Vernon? And mm-hmm. why, why is the reason for that? So that's, that's a part that 
I am much better to try to realize because you have actually all the story, not just like a random facts and you don't know where they come from. So some, that was something very surprising because when you go to these places, they do talk about the enslaves, you know, and like I said, Selma, for instance, she was here and George and Thomas Jefferson had several children. And it just such, it's so real, right? This history, at least they try to explain a good amount of history what happened and it's amazing how sometimes people just kind of like just gloss over that part which is it it's it's not good just to follow up on that point mount vernon and monticello speaking about slavery that is very recent so you know before they would just completely ignore that and so they're getting much better at telling that story in a more comprehensive way yeah. And so I was fortunate to go to Monticello at a time when they were really starting to say, well, this is what ins the life was like for uh, enslaved people here and how they contributed to to Monticello. And so I, I was really appreciative because otherwise I would have been mad. I would have been like, yeah. man, they're not even telling the whole story. So. <laughs> so to shift the conversation slightly, do you have an island in mind that you really like? Oh, yeah. Tahiti. Perfect. So imagine that you go to Tahiti, but the whole place is just for yourself, okay? You can take one protein, one veggie, one fruit, and one dessert. What do you take? Protein, spare ribs, okay. veggie, mustard greens, dessert, lemon ice box pie. I knew that. And the fruit? Oh, the fruit. Uh, yeah, don't ooh. be like five-year-olds don't, don't like to eat fruit. Like, what do you take with you? I like peaches. I love peaches. See, now just imagine going to Tahiti just with those those five, four things. What was your first memory of taste? My first memory of taste? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Thank you. I only ask one good question per podcast, so <laughs> that's the one. Wow, what a stumper. That's a great one. I am racking my brain. What's the first thing I remember? Okay. Take your time. Is this a common reaction? People like mm -hmm. really thinking about this? That's why I never tell them what some people really want to know the questions. And I, I always ask them, please, please not to know if this helps what I'm going to say. I think you can separate in two things. One thing is you being very, very, very young and you remember your mom giving you, I don't know, carrots. And the other thing you can be slightly older. I had that experience, for instance, because I remember since very, very young stage was my mom should mash some banana, put some sugar and a squeeze of orange juice. And I remember being very young eating that. But the first time I remember eating something that was like, oh, wow, it was a big piece of meat that my stepdad was grilling. And he'll grill a little bit, slice it, put back on the grill, slice it, it was full of salt. And that was an amazing taste in my mouth. So it can be two things. I was going to say the first taste I kind of that I remember is really just cream of wheat as a cereal with some butter and sugar in it, um, which I definitely transferred to grits, which is another whole controversy, right? But um, that's, why, is that's it, why is a controversy you can say? Oh, there's a lot of people that say grits should only have salt and pepper. Oh, about and, what you put in that? No, I, I I don't agree. I think you should put some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, but there's a lot of people that get salty about that. So, most underrated ingredient for you? Huh. All right, this may lose me some street cred, but granulated garlic. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Most overrated ingredients. Uh, saffron. Okay. The best breakfast <laughs> you can have. Best breakfast you can have? Oh man. Some fluffy some fluffy pancakes, buttermilk pancakes with some real good syrup and then um some country sausage. So like um 
you know, like Southern sausage that the patty kind, not the mm-hmm. links, but the patty that has a lot of sage and stuff in it. And so you get to the point where you're like almost at the end of the meal and you've got a little bits of sausage left and you got that syrup and, oh man, I just love that. Okay. I love pancakes. What, what is the strangest combination food-wise when people put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept? That I cannot accept. Okay. I was gonna. I thought you were gonna ask which I can accept. Uh, which I cannot accept. You can give both answers if you want. It's a bonus. So the one, the one that I can't accept, which sounds so weird, is chick, fried chicken and waffles. Chicken and waffles. I can't is really accept good. that one. Mm-hmm. We'll see. What can I not accept? Man, I'm pretty forgiving with my palate. I, I can't think of anything I don't eat. Or, but other people might do it. that you like, don't do that, please. Pineapple on pizza? Are you okay with that? Yeah, I actually am. Okay. All right. I was, this is I was from trying. Pre- okay. Okay. This is from presidential history. Okay. So evidently, Presidents Nixon and Presidents Ford like to mix A1 sauce and cottage cheese. As you do. That's That sounds pretty nasty to me. So I think that's one thing I would just not do. Wasn't that a problem for the staff to try to get some yogurt or cottage cheese for them? Yeah. So there's two examples. So what happens when a new president comes in, the White House staff tries to anticipate every need. And they make a little game out of it. So they try to redo research and stuff instead of just asking, right, which would be the easiest thing. They just try to do research and they want to just have pride. And it's like, yeah, we know what you want. So um, dairy seems to have been a problem in presidential history. So Eisenhower uh, first night asked the black butler who was uh, attending to him to get some yogurt. And the butler said, yes, Mr. President. And then he went to his boss and, and asked, what's yogurt? So imagine 1950s, late at night, you know, like in the evening, trying to get some yogurt because yogurt not, was not as, you know, but they plentiful as it is now. So they, they managed to get to a, a deli and get some. And then um, the Nixons wanted cottage cheese, which they didn't have on hand. So, yeah, those are two examples. So A1 wheat cottage cheese. Okay. Yeah, I'm not feeling that, man. No. Uh, so the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those actually are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Oh, man, I'll be turning more chickens. Yeah, uh, yeah, I got, I got, I don't want to say exceeded expectations yet. I got some work to do still. Perfect. At the end of the podcast, I always tell my guests to sell their fish. In Portugal, if you say to sell your fish, that's to talk about yourself. Where people can find you, what, what's in the future for you, I strongly recommend, you can even say that, but I'm saying before you, for people to buy both books. But what's in the future for you, where people can find all of that? Just sell your fish. Yeah, so uh, I'm Adrian Miller, the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. Hopefully we've done that <laughs> in this session. So you, uh, that's that's the way to find me on my website, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Soul Food Scholar. That's my handle for everything. Uh, you can buy my books. So my first book's on the history of soul food. We talked about that one, The President's Kitchen Cabinet. My next book is on the history of African-American barbecue. It's called Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue. I wrote that book because uh, I think African-American contributions to barbecue should be celebrated, and I'm tired of white dudes getting all the credit. <laughs> that comes out in late April. Late so, April. Okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's that's awesome. Well, Adrian, thank you very much for coming on a podcast. How's Colorado today? Is it cold there? Oh, no. Today is nice. We, we're going to have 50s to the next couple of days. Oh, then it I gets thought cold. nice for you was like minus 10, and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, okay. we've been pretty mild. Climate change is real, man. We've been pretty mild <laughs> in Colorado. That's true. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This was a pleasure, Adrian. Thank you. Nice to meeting you. 
Thank you very much, Adrian, for coming on the podcast. Let me just say now that I created a page on buymeacoffee.com. That is a website where is the best way for creators and artists to accept support or memberships from their fans. So if you like this podcast and you like to support it, go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins, M-A-R-T-I-N-S. And no, you're not really buying me a coffee because I'll be weird and then it'll be those Americans lattes with soy sauce and sprinkles on top. So no. Don't forget also to follow the podcast page on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. If you have any questions, you can send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. I will see you next Wednesday. Stay safe. Be happy. Adios.